listening to you. Turn to Psalm 139 tonight, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. Psalm 139, if you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. And if you just wave to them and get their attention, they'll get a Bible into your hands this evening. And then please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord uh, to you this evening. A couple of announcements for you tonight. Related to Vacation Bible School, immediately after our service this evening, we're going to begin to strike this stage and get it all set up for Vacation Bible School. And uh, so after the service, uh, if you'd like to have prayer for whatever needs you might have, we'll just have the pastors and others available on either side at the back of the sanctuary. And um, you'll be able to spot them very easily. They'll be the people you just go, God chose them, and that's, that's the person. You'll know they're a pastor and a leader in this church and uh, can go and receive great blessing from them in prayer. Also, if you're interested in helping set up for Vacation Bible School this evening, please stop by the information counter out in the Fellowship Hall, and they'll assign you to something this evening as we get... Uh, looking forward to one of the greatest weeks uh, in the whole year uh, here at the church, Vacation Bible School, all the whippersnappers whipping and snapping in all of their glory, and we get a chance to enjoy that. Psalm 139, and I don't think we'd be overstating it to say this is absolutely one of the most favorite psalms of all of the psalms of God's people, some of you. It's already a favorite of yours, and uh, you have a long history with this psalm. And then uh, for some of you tonight, I will have the privilege of um, introducing you to Psalm 139, uh, knowing that it will become a very close and personal friend to you all the days of of your uh, pilgrimage. And so Psalm 139, you just get caught up with David as he writes it by the Spirit of God. And, and it's just, to me, I've, I've always thought of it like, you know, you get those balloons and you put the helium in it or whatever it is, and they go flying off. And of course, uh, you know, the kid lets go and it goes off, but it just soars higher and higher and higher. And so the Psalm does the same thing. And one of the things that's so beautiful about it is that it is a... Um, of course, the psalm is God's Word. It's a revelation of the Holy Spirit to us. But there's something wonderful about listening and watching a Christian enjoy the Lord. And I always get that sense when I read Psalm 139 that here I'm getting to peek in on David's relationship with the Lord, how intimate it is, how beautiful it is, how he is like so much like a child in the psalm in the best sense of, of things and how much he loves the Lord for how good the Lord has been to him. He said, O Lord, uh, you have searched me and known me. And he begins in these first six verses of Psalm 139, meditating upon what is known as the omniscience of God, the fact that God knows everything. There's nothing that God doesn't know. (laughs) We never tell him about something, and he goes, What? He goes, Hmm. I'd never considered that before. There's nothing he doesn't know. I've got a little picture up in my office, and it's kind of like a takeoff on an old far side. For those of you who remember the far side, wasn't that sad when that all stopped. But anyway, um, but 
it has, you know, it has a kind of a picture of God and the big beard and the white beard and white hair and all. And he's playing Jeopardy. And, of course, he's got all of the points. I mean, there's nothing he does. And the guy's right next to him, you know, hasn't got a single point at all. And it's got, it might even be sacrilegious. I don't know. But it... It uh, always reminds me of Psalm 139, that the Lord knows everything. He said, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. And that word search there, it means to search out or to examine. Job used the word and he used it to speak of mining in a, in a mine, going to the deepest place uh, in a mine to find the ore. And it speaks about the fact that God knows us inside and out. He knows the deepest things about us. What's interesting about God's knowledge is He knows stuff about us that we don't know about us. That's always interesting to discover in our relationship with the Lord. And here He is. He's working in our lives. He's conforming us into the image of Christ. And He says, all right, I'm going to begin to work on this. And a lot of times He doesn't tell us ahead of time what He's going to begin to work on in our lives. And uh, so pretty soon He's working on that. We never knew that was in us. We never knew it was there for him to pull out and get rid of or to come in and begin to nurture and develop into something great within our lives. And so the Lord knows us like nobody else knows us. He knows us inside and out. And the marvel, of course, as the psalmist gets to it later, is that he knows us that well and he still loves us. It speaks of his love. Why does he love us? Why does he love me? I'll leave you out of it. Because I'm so lovable. No, that's not. If he loved me because I was lovable, I would wake up every morning feeling the pressure to be lovable, which would be immense pressure for me. Now, he loves us because he is love. And that's, that's, it comes out of his character. It's who he is. So we get to rest in that love, receive it, and enjoy peace in our relationship with the Lord because we're not earning that from him. So the Lord knows us very, very well. I love Gail Irwin. One time I heard him teaching many, many years ago about God's choosing him to do what he does as a leader in the body of Christ, really an influence for God all around the world. And he said, the only thing that makes me wonder about God is his choice of me. I thought, that's exactly right, Gail. I wonder about you too. Now, we immediately, we immediately put it to ourselves, don't we? We realize, boy, I mean... His choice of us into this family and then into Christian service and knowing what He knows about us, is, it, either, it either leaves you in a place where you wonder about His decision-making ability, which we never should, or at least leaves us in awe of the greatness of His grace and His love, which is what He intends to be the case in our lives. You have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. How many times do you sit down and get up in the course of a day? I don't know. But every time you do, he knows that you've done that. Nobody knows. You don't even know how often you do that. But every time you sit down, he's there. He's present. He, or he, he knows that you've done it. Every time you get up, he knows. You're, you understand my thought afar off. He knows, in terms of his knowledge, he knows what I'm going to think before I even think it. That's the kind of knowledge that he has related to me. Now, that's a tremendous advantage. Sometimes people say, you know, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God a thing or two. Well, just be prepared that he will know what you're going to ask him before you ask him. So it's not like you're going to go up there and stump him on anything. 
So he, he his, the depth of his knowledge of us, he knows our thoughts before we are even able to formulate those thoughts. You comprehend my path and my laying down. You know, you know when I'm walking, you know when I'm lying down. God is aware of all that and you're acquainted with all of my ways. And so he knows every move we're going to make. He knows every situation in our life, everything that we do, no matter how commonplace it is from the time that we get out of bed in the morning till the time we return to bed at night. He is aware of every single thing. For there is not a word on my tongue, uh, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. He knows every word that I speak. He knows all of that. He says, you have hedged me behind and before you've laid your hand upon me. And this speaks about protection. When you put a hedge or a defense in front of someone and behind someone, it's talking about a forward guard and a rear guard. And, and God puts that kind of thing uh, in, our, in our life. He knows exactly what we need. This becomes very significant um, during times of spiritual warfare where the attack can become so great you don't know whether you're going to survive the attack. And sometimes the attack becomes so great that you can be tempted to think, Lord, do you know what's going on for me at the time because I'm kind of hanging by the skin of my teeth at the moment. And he does know. And he knows fully what's going on. And he has put a hedge behind us and before us, whether that's angels or his Holy Spirit or whatever he has to do. Nothing the devil is allowed to bring against us comes against us except God allows that. We see that from the book of Job. And so God always knows. He knows what our margins are. He knows how far He can take us. And out of that knowledge, He protects us in any kind of battle or any kind of circumstance that we're in. And, of course, spiritual warfare can be one of the greatest battles that, that we face in, uh, in life. And so here's this uh, knowledge of God and, and, and His knowledge of us. Sometimes we talk about, you know, the old saying concerning Santa... He's making a list, checking it twice, going to find out who's naughty or nice. And you can read, you can th- read this just in terms of personality type. Somebody can read through this and see the knowledge that God has of them and be terrified. He knows every word that comes out of my mouth and then, you know, leave the service condemned and wiped out. And that's not the tone of it. That's not what David is writing about. And is, and because it isn't this, it isn't this thing where God knows us in this way and He's doing it because He's putting us to a continual daily test of, you know, whether we're worthy of having Him as our God. I remember hearing one man speak about, um, uh, his grandson was in a children's church class and, uh, the teacher in the children's church class was talking about the uh, omniscience of God, that he knows everything, and then even getting into the fact that, you know, uh, God is present with him and watching him and all. Well, this put terror in the kid. Don't you, you know, steal a cookie and whatever the application was, and the terror and all. And as the child then spoke to his father um, and related to the lesson and everything, his father, who was also a pastor, said to him, uh, listen, the, the reason that God 
has his eyes on you continually is because he loves you so much he can't take his eyes off of you. And that's the, that's the truth of the matter. And that's what David is communicating here. This isn't a thing of, oh, God knows all of these things, and so um, now I better be in my own strength better than I've ever been before. It is a, a great blessing to David and a, a great comfort to him that God knows him in this way and his life and his circumstances. He said, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high I can't attain it. David said, I can't get my mind around this truth that you know everything about me, Lord. There's no mystery here. And yet, as we'll see, you continue to love me. And then David uh, moves on in uh, verse 7, and he begins to speak about the omnipresence of God, the fact that God is everywhere all at once. We can't go anywhere that, um, that the Lord isn't already there. He's present everywhere all at the same, uh, same time. He said, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. Well, we think to ourselves, of course he's in heaven. And then we get surprised in the next verse. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. And hell speaks here of Sheol, the waiting place where people are kind of uh, kept in a place uh, before the final judgment, the white throne judgment uh, of the Lord. And here in the Old Testament, so often Sheol or hell speaks of death. And so uh, here he's talking about the fact that I'm not separated from God. Even the limitations of the Old Testament revelation related to God, David realized that even death will not separate me from the presence of God. We have a much fuller understanding of this in the New Testament, we know that to be absent from the body is to be immediately uh, present uh, with the Lord. And so, if I make my bed in hell, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning, and the wings of the morning speak of the sunrise, the light traveling 186,000 miles a second. He said, if I could hop on one of those waves, uh, light rays uh, that came up in the morning, and I were to uh, sail out with that and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand would lead me and your right hand uh, shall hold me. So here is the uh, omnipresence of God. No matter where we went, if we were to get on a ray of light and go into outer space as far as you could go at that kind of a speed, anywhere we went, we would discover that God is there. And any ocean voyage that you might take, uh, Jonah sure discovered that, didn't he? All right, I'm going to get away from God, and I'm going to get away from his calling. I am not going to preach grace to those Ninevites. And uh, so I know God hates water, so I'm going to get in a boat, and uh, I'm going to sail in the opposite direction. God loves water. So he discovered you're not, you, can't, you cannot escape the presence of God. He is everywhere, and he is everywhere in his fullness. Isn't that wonderful to realize? Sometimes some of you travel as a part of your job, and you go to this part of the world or this part of the United States, and you're away from your family, sometimes away from 
your home church fellowship and that kind of thing. And then wonderful to realize that no matter where I am, God is here in just as great a fullness as he is anywhere. I can praise him. I can worship him. I can commune with him. God is everywhere. And so he said, if I say, surely the darkness, verse 11, shall fall on me, even the night shall be light around me. God is just as present in the, at nighttime in the dark as in the day. So those of you who are scared of the dark, not a problem with God. Most, most people get over that when we cease to be kids. But sometimes the dark can be a little creepy depending on where. But God doesn't know light or dark. It isn't like he's got to put those night goggles on. Now, where where'd he go? He sees equally, equally present in the light and in the dark. But the night shines as the day and the darkness and the light are both alike unto you. And then in verse 13, he moves into the... Uh, omnipotence of God, the fact that God is all-powerful. And what's interesting is that when David deals here with the omnipotence of God, the fact that God is almighty, that he is all-powerful, he doesn't take out the telescope. When we talk about um, the almightiness of God, uh, so often the, uh, a songwriter uh, writing a worship song will speak of the planets, of the sun, of the heavens, uh, uh, you know, speak of it in, t- in the context of a telescope. But here David goes and he turns to the microscope in order to um, take a look at, you know, the uh, great power uh, of God. And the reason that he does that doesn't speak of the mountains or the sun or the moon or, or the sky or anything like that, but he speaks of the creation of man. And the reason he does that is an expression of uh, God, the greatest expression of God's power is because the single greatest thing that God ever created was man. Because we were originally created in his image. And nothing else in creation was created in the image of God. Man is a wonder, a marvel of the power of God. And so he declares, for you, for you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. And so he reflects back upon when he was in his mother's womb and the miracle of God that occurred in his mother's womb, in that secret place that he was being fashioned, his heart, his mind, his soul, his strength. And, and every child that is fashioned in that womb is unique in human history. While that child is in that, the mother's womb, uh, his or her race is being determined. Sex is being determined. Uh, mental faculties, emotional faculties, um, physical characteristics, colors of, of the eye, shapes of the ears, the uniqueness of the human face, all of that wonder is being done, and no two human beings are, are the same. And it's a marvel, the miracle of God's power that occurs in a mother's womb, in the conception and in, in the development uh, of, of a baby. You think about the wonder of the human being in that womb. We think so often physically, again, thinking about 
um, you know, skin color, or eye color, or all of these different kinds of things that make up what we are physically, the size of a nose or ears or all of these kind of things. But think about the marvel of the senses. Think about the marvel of us being created by God and, and in His creating of us. Just the human eye alone... If, even if you didn't look at the support system for the human eye that the rest of the body is and how interconnected it is, the human eye is absolutely amazing. And then what about your capacity to fall in love? Where does that come from? How does this gray matter up here and then the hormones and the chemicals and the, how does all of this translate into feeling? How, how marvelous it is to head into that realm and realize the power of God in creation, the marvel that a human being is, the, the marvel of God's creation. So in the old days... Well, I used to when I would go to, you know, somebody would have a baby in the fellowship. I visit them in the hospital. I still visit, but I, but I don't say this anymore. <laughs> so I got all your attention. So I used to go in and look at this little baby and hold the baby and say to the mom and dad if they were strong Christians. And I would say, "Isn't evolution wonderful?" And we would just all laugh. We'd all laugh. The psalmist would laugh. That, that was the, that's the whole point. The psalmist would just crack up at that. It's ridiculous to think that this could ever be evolution. Look at this. This is a combination of the two of you. Look at the fingers. Look at the eyes. Look at the everything. I don't do that anymore because the last time I did it, <laughs> somebody wasn't ready for it. Her eyes got this big, you know. And even though I told her I was joking immediately, I thought, all right, maybe I have liberty other people don't have. <laughs> and maybe most people would like it, but I can't give them a questionnaire ahead of time for whether that's going to stumble them or not. No, he is not going to dedicate our baby. He talked about evolution when he visited our baby in the hospital. All right? We'll get the child dedicated at Shelter Cove, and then we'll attend Calvary Chapel. I will praise you, verse 14, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made, and we are. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret. He was made. He recognizes that his, the life. It's not the cells just doing their thing. He was made by God in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance before being yet unformed. When there were just the one cell now divides into the two cells and then into the four and then into the eight and then so forth and so forth and so forth. From that moment of conception, David recognized that God saw him as a human being. Not that he would become a human being when he was born or at some point in the pregnancy but that God saw him as a human being as he sees every child as a human being. 
right from that point inside of, of the mother's uh, womb. And so that recognition of, of the fact that God saw that, God was involved, God was skillfully uh, developing him. And your eyes saw my substance, verse 16, being yet unformed. And in your book they are all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. David said, when you saw me in the womb, and I think we've all seen pictures of babies in the womb. We see the development this many weeks, this, you know, this many weeks. Sometimes it just kind of looks like a little tadpole at the very beginning, and then boom and boom and boom and boom. And then, then it's worse than over here because now you realize this child's going to look like me. <laughs> Poor thing. And then the child is born. But David recognized that not only was he a human being in that womb, but that God had already attached a plan to his life while he was still in his mother's womb. And all the way through this section, you see this I, 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 me, I, all personal pronouns. There's not an it in there. The recognition that that child in that womb is a child. And I don't need to tell you. Our culture needs to understand that, needs to recognize uh, that related to, you know, the unborn. I think of Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5 and all of this, this that uh, life begins at conception, not at the birth of the child. God spoke to Jeremiah and said, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Now, that's even before the two cells turn into four. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you, and I ordained you a prophet to the nations. God attached a plan already. He's attached a plan to our lives all the way from the womb. Beautiful to realize. Your eyes saw are already there. So verse 17, he moves now from the omnipotence of God, the fact that God is all-powerful. So God is everywhere all at the same time. God, God knows everything. Uh, God is all-powerful. And then the thing that knocks him out the most about all of this is despite the fact that he knows everything, he's all-powerful, he's ever-present everywhere, that even though he is that big of a God, he loves you and me. That's humbling. That's humbling to me. I know it is to you as well. This is the thing that gets to David. And he said, as big as you are, and yet how precious are your thoughts to me Oh, God, how great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. You think about the sand. My favorite movie in all of life is Lawrence of Arabia. A lot of sand in Lawrence of Arabia. Think about all of the sand of all of the beaches in the whole world, all of the sand of all of the deserts in the whole world, all of the sand and all of the playgrounds of all of the world. And you put all of those together, and God thinks more thoughts toward you personally than all of that sand, grains of sand put together. You see, how can he do it? He's infinite. He can do it. 
And the interesting thing is somebody says, all right, I'll buy the fact that he thinks of me that much. But boy, he's just, anybody that thinks about me that much, he's got to hate me. No, he doesn't. Talks about the fact how precious are your thoughts toward me, oh God. God never stops thinking about you. You are never out of his mind or out of his thoughts at all. And all of his thoughts toward you are good. And we need to know that. And it's important to recognize that about God. You know, when we're healthy, wealthy, and wise or whatever, and we're sitting in a place in life where everything's going very, very well, those truths can kind of just seem like, okay, great, that's a nice psalm. And then comes those times in life where something very hard hits and you wonder, God, do you know? God, do you understand? God, are you present? And what do you think of me in all of this? And how well we do in the trial can turn on how what we understand to be his attitude toward us as his children and to realize he never stops thinking about us and all of his thoughts are good. Even if he has to spank us once in a while and do something hard, it never means that his, he, his thoughts toward us are not uh, good. If I should count them, they should be more in number than the sand. And when I awake, I am still with you. And so here is this the idea that even when we're asleep, God is thinking about us. It's one of the things I pray pretty regularly when I go to sleep and I commit the night season to him. Lord, just redeem this. The Bible talks about the night season and God ministering in the night season. For me, it's going to be like a total loss, eight hours, gone. Man, all the things I could have got done. It's interesting, no matter how powerful a person is, or rich or poor or, you know, position or title that they have, everybody's got to put that head down on their bed and they're as vulnerable as a little tiny baby for those hours that we have to sleep at night. And yet the Bible says that he who keepeth Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. While we are asleep, he is thinking about us, aware of us, and thinking good things about us and looking after us. And all of it left David in awe. He said, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. And now, it be, it, as he thinks about all of this related to God, he looks at the world, he looks at the sin of the world, he looks at wickedness in the world, the things that would separate us from a God who is this good. And essentially he declares to God, keep me separated from anything that would hurt my relationship and my intimacy with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. He says, then search me, O God, and know my heart. Here's a beautiful, fresh surrender to the Lord. Try me and know my anxiety. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So he looks and he says, Lord, in terms of the wicked and the influence of the wicked, I don't want anything out there in the world to rob me of 
intimacy with you, but I also, Lord, know that there can be wickedness or sin in my own heart that would remove me from the intimacy of relationship that you want to have with me. And so search me, Lord, and remove that and lead me in the way everlasting. That is, lead me in the way that uh, leads us all the way into heaven. And so this wonderful celebration of God's uh, omniscience, His omnipresence, His omnipotence, His power, and this beautiful celebration of the love of God for us. So then we come to Psalm 140. And Psalm 140 is a cry uh, of David for deliverance from the wicked. He said, deliver me, O Lord, from evil men. You know, there's evil men in the world. Some people would like to believe that there aren't evil men in the world. And then what, what's the sure cure for it? Run into an evil man. Deliver me, O Lord, from evil men. Preserve me from violent men who plan evil things in their hearts. They continually gather together for war. They sharpen their tongues like a serpent. The poison of asps is under their lips. And David then goes on, goes on to cry, Keep me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Preserve me from violent men who have made my steps stumble. The proud have hidden a snare for me. They're trying to destroy me in cords. They're trying to overthrow me. They've spread a net by the wayside. They have set traps for me. And so these wicked men were trying to set David up for some kind of a fall. And then David cried out to the Lord. I said to the Lord, you are my God. God, you're greater than all of these enemies, these people that are coming against me. And I like that. You are my God. And it's heavy on the you. Do a double underline on the you and a single underline under the my. <laughs> It's kind of like in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. You get, the, you get into the positive confession movement that wants to be the God. I want to be God and I want to dictate to God. And so it's like the Lord is my shepherd. There's the emphasis on my. And when it really should be the Lord is my shepherd and the emphasis upon the Lord. And so this is what he's uh, thankful for. Is, yes, my enemies are great. They've lined up against me. But you are my God. Hear my supplic- the voice of my supplications, O Lord. And he begins to pray related to his need. O Lord God, the strength of my salvation. You have covered my head in the day of battle. Do not grant, O Lord, the desires of the wicked. Do not further his wicked schemes, lest they be exalted. And so he prays upon, prays to the Lord that the Lord would not allow the wicked men to be successful against him. And then he goes on to cry out to the Lord that he would turn the evil intent of his enemies uh, upon themselves. As for the head of those who surround me, let the evil of their lips cover them. In other words, the, whoever was the ringleaders that were trying to overthrow David or make life miserable for David, David said, everything that's coming out of their mouth, the evil that they want to direct toward me, God, I pray that you would direct it upon them. Let burning coals fall upon them. Let them be cast into the fire. Gives you an idea of what they were planning for David. Into deep pits that they rise not again. Let not a slander be established in the earth. Let evil hunt down the violent man to overthrow him. And so it's kind of an interesting thing to think about. 
isn't it, where uh, this prayer of David and the desire that every, you know, to think about how wonderful it would be in a sense for every wicked deed that an evil person was going to do to somebody else, that that would be done to them before they could do it to somebody else. You wonder about what, what kind of a restraining influence that would have upon evil. But we know when the thousand-year reign of Christ comes, he, Jesus is going to rule with a rod of iron. There's not going to be any of that nonsense. And, and you know, we'll end up in a wonderful environment. So all of this ends up happening in, a, in kind of a different way. But for David's revelation, this was the best that, you know, he could understand is, Lord, bring it down on their heads and don't let the wicked man be, you know, prevail in being a torment to the righteous. Uh, let them get a little taste of their own medicine. And then David closes the psalm with a great prayer of confidence to the Lord that God is going to do this. Uh, God is going to deliver him from evil men. I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and justice for the poor. It is amazing in the Scriptures the focus of God upon the powerless within a culture and in the world. The people that are most vulnerable within a culture. God watches everything that's done to them. He takes it as a personal project of His to look after those people. And David considered himself one of those people in his situation. We consider ourselves one of those people. And so David knew, Lord, you are not going to let the evil prevail in, in this. And surely the righteous shall give thanks in your name. Lord, I'm, tell, I'm praising you ahead of time for what you're going to do in this situation. And when you deliver me from this pickle that I'm in because of the evil of other people, the righteous are going to see what you did and it's going to bless their heart as well. The upright shall dwell in your presence. In other words, at the end of all of this life that we live, and we will only know evil in this life, that, but that all of this ends up in heaven for us. This is as bad as it gets for us. And yet life is wonderful. Walked with the Lord and enjoyed with the Lord. And it's good to be reminded of the fact that, especially in times of persecution and difficulty, that there is a heaven which will go on forever and ever and ever and ever on the other side of this life. And that makes sometimes these seasons of persecution by the wicked or when it looks like they're prevailing or this ungodly person has taken advantage of me in this situation, it looks like they're getting away with it to realize that this is not our fullest portion, not this life. This life is a preparation for heaven and it is a very good preparation for heaven. Ultimately, everyone ends up longing for heaven as a part of this preparation. And so uh, David recognized in all of this that there is a heaven on the other side of, uh, of all of this, and that, that is his portion. Psalm 141 is an evening prayer of, uh, of David uh, crying out to the Lord for sanctification and for protection uh, to be given to him from the Lord. So it appears in Psalm 141 that there were um, uh, wicked men. David is in their company, the company of wicked men, who are deciding to... Um, David is not yet the king of Israel, 
And uh, Saul, the way that King Saul, the first king of Israel, was handling his power, he was creating a lot of enemies. David wasn't just the only person that was on the lam. He was the most significant person running from Saul for his life. There were a lot of other people where the abuse of Saul's power had a lot of people very troubled with Saul. And so you've got these kind of assassination plots that are going on and wicked men who are looking and saying to David, why don't you join us in a plot? We will take Saul out and then you can be the next king of Israel as God has promised to you. So they're tempting David to take his his future into his own hands and out of the timing and preparation of God's hand and to join with them in an assassination of Saul. But God didn't want the biblical record to end up being one where Saul died at the hands of, you know, people that had been abused by Saul. God had a whole plan for David, but he had a whole plan for the death of Saul so that Saul's life from beginning to end would be a great lesson to God's people through thousands of years of history now, 3,000 years of history. And so David's in the midst of this, and you think about what he went through at the hands of Saul. He's running for his life every single day. He's had to move his family from Bethlehem to Moab over into modern-day Jordan. Everywhere he goes, he's on guard. He's looking. All of the, his family's been torn apart. He's been separated from his wife. I mean, this man has done terrible damage to him. And as David is in the midst of these conversations, there's a, something that appeals to him on some level of, yeah, why don't we take him out? It's kind of like when you get, if you've ever been in a church where um, you get burned. And maybe a leader in the church, maybe the pastor in the church does something and it's wrong and it really hurts a lot of people and a church split occurs. And then that group that gets hurt, you know, kind of if they aren't careful to deal with that for the rest of their life, every time they get together, that's all they'll talk about is the terrible thing that happened to us and, and what about you and didn't, and the same thing and didn't you want to really get, you know, throttle them too and, and all that. And, and so they're all victims of the same abuse. And David looks at it and says, no, I don't want to get pulled into all of this. And so, Lord, you keep me sanctified from it. And so he said, Lord, I cry out to you. Make haste to me. You ever pray that? Hurry! Give ear to my voice when I cry out to you. And let my prayer be set before you as incense. Let it be a sweet aroma to you, Lord. The lifting of my hands is the evening sacrifice. So he is somewhere at night at the time that the evening sacrifice is being offered, late afternoon, and he is lifting his hands up in prayer and praying this to the Lord. It's a beautiful picture, really. And he said, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth and keep watch over the door of my lips. I love it. There's a proverb. It's a favorite of mine. It goes like this. In the multitude of words, there wanteth not sin. Translation, keep talking long enough and you'll sin with your mouth. It's just the way that it is. Maybe not for you. Okay, for me. And so David says, 
man, these guys are talking about how much Saul and this and how they didn't and he shouldn't and how and, and David is just going, man, I want, I want to join that conversation so bad. But God, you have promised that I'll be the next king of Israel, that you will take care of that. God, give me the grace and the strength not to enter this conversation and be an encouragement to these men who want to take Saul out some other way than the way that you have planned. And there's a beautiful self-distrust in David here and a beautiful transparency in all of this as well. You know, I could, I'd never sin with my mouth and it's just, this is just a complete um, organ of praise and prayer to the Lord. Now we know better than that about our lives. And he looks and he says, no, Lord, don't let me, you, I ask you to keep me and watch that nothing inappropriate comes out of my lips. Do not incline my heart to any evil thing to practice wicked works with men who work iniquity. God, Lord, you know these plans are appealing to me on, on the level of the flesh, but I don't want my heart to go in that direction. And do not let me eat of their delicacies. And so David is with these wicked men, and apparently he's in some kind of a, a tent that they're in and um, where... Uh, you know, they've probably got the treasures of wickedness or the, uh, this kind of thing. And you can become wealthy for a short period of time uh, through wickedness. And David looks at it and says, I don't want to eat of their delicacies. I don't want to get hooked on um, the, um, the things that you can gain by wickedness. And it's a powerful influence. You look at how many young men and women join gangs today because they've been introduced into some den of wickedness and they've seen money, they've seen drugs, they've seen alcohol, they've seen worldly pleasures, they see all of these things that have been gained through wickedness and then they look at that and they say, I want that. And it's a powerful, powerful temptation. And it isn't just happening related to gangs, it happens with people that are on Wall Street. And, and so David looked and said, hey, I don't want to look at anything that they have that comes by wickedness and have it appeal to me in any way or become a part of it. Let the righteous strike me and it'll be a kindness and let him rebuke me and it shall be as excellent oil. Let my head not refuse it. David said, I'd rather have the rebuke of the righteous than the praise of the wicked. For my, still my prayer is against the deeds of the wicked. Their judges are overthrown by the sides of the cliff, and they hear my words, for they are sweet. Our bones are scattered at the mouth of the grave, and when one plows and breaks up the earth. So talking about the wicked persecuting the righteous and, and the death of the righteous. But my eyes are upon you, uh, O God, the Lord kept his eyes on the Lord, in you I take refuge. You're my hiding place in this temptation. Do not leave my soul destitute. Keep me from the snares that they've laid for me. They're trying to pull me into this, from the traps of the workers of iniquity, and let the wicked fall into their own nets. 
while I escape safely. And so uh, this beautiful psalm to uh, flee from, you know, temptation, the temptation to wickedness. Jesus encapsulates Psalm 141 in a beautiful way in what's known as the Lord's Prayer when he has us praying on a daily basis and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Lord, don't let the opportunity to sin and the desire to sin overlap in my life today. And if it does overlap, Lord, give me the grace to resist it or to find a way of escape. Beautiful psalm with Old Testament, New Testament application. And then we have Psalm 142. It's a beautiful psalm about, uh, that speaks to us of the fact that when nobody else seems to care for us, the Lord does. That, that's just a gospel song waiting to be written. Now? Okay. Are you dead out there? Okay. Do you know nothing about gospel music? No. Obviously. Or you would have glommed onto that title I gave you to your number one gold album, platinum album, Dove Award album. I just handed it to you, the title. You come up with the music and the words and send the royalty to me. So let's try this again. So we've got a, a song for when nobody seems to care uh, that God does. I cry out to the Lord with my voice. And with my voice to the Lord, I make supplication. I pour out. So I cry out. I pour out my complaint before him. I declare before him all of my trouble. Now it tells us in the introduction of this psalm that David prayed this psalm when he was in a cave. You know, prayer can, can turn any place in the world, even a cave, into holy ground. There were two times that David was in a cave while he was fleeing from Saul. Once was at the cave of Adullam at one time, and then one time was in the caves of Engedi, where David was being hunted down and Saul came close to killing him. But he didn't kill him because God was going to make him the king of Israel. And so here he is. He's in this difficult place again, and he cries out, to the Lord. And he says, when my heart, spirit was overwhelmed within me, then you knew my path and the way in which I walk. They have secretly set a snare for me. So he's overwhelmed at the fact that David, uh, Saul is using the, the resources of an entire nation to try and track him down and kill him. Now think about that. We think about David. Think about if somebody had the ability to use all of the resources of the United States of America to track you down and kill you. And that's what was going on with David. That's the fix that he was in. Now, they didn't have the kind of technology that they have today, but spies all throughout the land and everything. And this was a great uh, temptation to be overwhelmed by the greatness of this trial. And then he said in verse 4, Look on my right hand and see there's no one who acknowledges me. Refuge has failed me, Lord. No one cares for my soul. God, look at my right hand. Look at my left hand. I don't have any friends. I'm friendless in this cave. I'm all alone in, in, in this. And you've called me to be the next king of Israel. No one cares for me. There were multiple times where David 
went into Jewish cities and delivered them from the bondage of the Philistines. And the thanks that he got from Jewish people, from God's people, was that somebody then went and told Saul that David's here so that they could come and arrest David. Talk about fickle people. And so David just looks and he says, I don't have any... I can't even buy friends. I can't even deliver people out of the bondage of the Philistines and have them remain my friend because people are so busy currying the favor of wicked men, namely King Saul. And it's a hard place to be. That's a hard trial. And he said, I cried out to you, O Lord, and I said, you are my refuge. And I don't care who we are in life. Sooner or later we come to a place where the situation is so big and People are so fickle, or the limitations. They may love us, but they have limitations to help us in the situation. And it's just us and God. And he said, attend to my cry, for I'm brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. Bring my soul out of prison, that I may praise your name. And the righteous south shall surround me, and you shall deal bountifully with me. So David cries this great uh, lament to the Lord in his difficulty, and nobody seems to care for him, but he recognized that God did. Now, one of the beautiful things about these psalms is the recognition that here is David. He thinks it's the end of the world for him, the end of his rope. I'm not going to survive this. And now he survives it, and then this trial comes. I'm not going to survive this trial. All of these things are going on, and yet we have the priceless privilege of knowing the rest of the story. God gave David promises that he would become the next king of Israel and that God would bless him. And even though David hit these places where it looked like God's plan for his life was in jeopardy, we know historically that not one promise of God's word to David failed David. Not one. And what is true of David is also true of every one of our lives here tonight in the circumstances that we find ourselves in. God's reputation is bound up in us. He cannot fail in His promises toward us. He will not fail in His promises toward us. And sometimes when you find yourself like David at this very point, and it's like it's the breaking point, and it's like one more inch, Lord, I don't know if you know that you are within an inch of having one of your eternal promises broken in a human life, but I feel that it is my responsibility to let you know that we are there at at this point in my life. And sometimes you get to that place, and God is aware of inches and quarter inches, But he will always be faithful to his promises. And sometimes there's the need, as David does here in this psalm. Notice in verse 1 and 2, I cry out, I pour out, I declare. There's a need to then cry out to the Lord and pray to the Lord and pray it out loud and to pray faith out loud to the Lord related to God's calling and His purposes and claiming His promises in God's Word for your life. And so it's beautiful we see how low David got, how discouraged he got, how doubtful he got at times before faith was revived, but none of it affected the faithfulness of God related to his life. 
And the same thing is true of you. And the same thing is true of me. Well, let's turn our hearts now to the Lord's Supper by turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 11.